Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget the matching grant campaign we've got on now. If you go to the webpage at the Analysis.News, you'll see all the details, but more or less, two members have put up a 5000 bucks each to create a $10,000 matching grant campaign. That's the second $10,000 matching grant campaign. We already matched the first one. And you'll get all the details there. Uh, but if you haven't donated, now's a great time. And if you'd like to up your uh, monthly donation, that's going to get matched too. Uh, so we'll be back in a second. Norman Solomon is a tireless fighter for progressive values inside and outside the Democratic Party. He's written several columns recently about the fight to get Biden to, at the very least, not nominate to senior positions warmongers. You think that's not too much to ask? And Wall Street hacks. Perhaps even nominate people that represent the almost 10 million people that voted for Bernie Sanders and three million that voted for Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic Party primaries. Now joining us to analyze the class struggle in the Democratic Party is Norman Solomon. He's the author of a dozen books, including War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Norman is the founder of the Institute for Public Accuracy. He's the co-founder and national director of the online organization, rootsaction.org, and I would encourage you to check that out. It now has around 1.2 million active supporters in the U.S. And he was elected as a Bernie Sanders delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 2016 and again in 2020, both times organizing as a coordinator of the Independent Bernie Delegates Network. Thanks for joining us, Norman. Oh, pleasure. Thanks, Paul. So before we dig into some of the things you've been writing about, which are you know about the appointments uh, Biden has still to do and has recently done, as well as this whole issue of taking up the struggle against corporate Democrats, as you call them. Um, let's just dig into this, this first question a little bit, which is, I go back to Hillary Clinton on this one, because I remember when she was on stage uh, debating Bernie Sanders, uh, she said, Bernie and I really have the same objectives. We just have a different way of getting there. And, and they like to portray this whole fight with the left of the Democratic Party as if it's a difference of ideology. It's a difference of opinion, how you get to the same kinds of progressive values. The corporate Democrats like to describe themselves as progressives and so on. But, but I don't think this is so much a difference of ideology. I mean, it is. But it's also, a, and more importantly, a difference of interest about who these corporate Democrats represent in terms of economic interest. And I'm not sure that gets talked about enough in terms of what's going on in the Democratic Party. What's your take on that? Well, really, I think there is some overlap in interest at certain moments, like when it's up against someone such as Trump, then there's a common shared interest in defeating him and those forces around general election time. But in terms of whose interests are being represented long term, I think that there is and there certainly should be a very big difference between the current Democratic Party establishment and those who call themselves progressives and really want to move the party and the country in a leftward direction. So it's not just tactical. It's not just even in the narrow sense that you refer to ideological. 
it's about a vision of what kind of society we want. And I think, you know, a, a buzzword uh, that is used sometimes for what the Clinton wing of the party, the Biden wing of the party want is neoliberalism. And they see market economies as the future. They love to see rich people get richer. They think opportunity is a buzzword to use because everybody has a chance theoretically to get rich. Whereas the forces that galvanized around the Bernie Sanders campaigns have, I think, a very different long-term vision. Uh, whatever you want to call it, democratic socialism or anything else, uh, it's about a society where seriously people in power and government are committed to uh, health care as a human right, uh, education, housing across the board, and that money doesn't rule, but people rule in a truly democratic way. And that is a fundamental difference. And the battles within the Democratic Party and across the society, I think, really reflect those very deep differences. Yeah, I, th I think that the Democratic Party wants to portray itself as if it's the party of FDR and the New Deal. Uh, but the leadership, the corporate leadership, the Democratic Party has actually been, undo along with Republicans, undoing the New Deal since World War II. And, and then the other part of it is, I, I think that they have accepted, accepted it's, again, it's not just a, an opinion or ideology, they, they accepted it because it was real in the sense that they, the way to rebuild the U.S. economy after World War II, be, rather than go back into the depression of the 30s, you either had to move even further than the New Deal, or you had to maintain and even strengthen militarization as a form of stimulus. And so much of the foreign policy thinking of the Democratic Party is rooted in the justification for militarization, which is the whole Cold War narrative. The Soviet Union is this existential threat. And they continue it now because militarization is still such a big part of the American economy. And, and they don't want to go where the alternative would be, which would be you know a massive New Deal domestic program and actually cut back on militarization. Well, that's a key point. You have about 55% of the federal discretionary budget going to the military. They call it the Defense Department. We should call it uh, military spending. And when you look at the potential to free up huge amounts of money to really address human needs, it's, it's vast. Uh, the two ways to do it is we would have a, an enormous cut uh, a severe cut in military spending. And also we would have genuinely progressive taxation and not only a very steep progressive taxation of the 1%, but especially you might say uh, the 0.01% and just really tax the rich with a justified vengeance so that there's the amount of resources to provide healthcare and education and housing uh, for everybody in the country. And it could be done, but it's not only a matter of political will. More importantly, it's a matter of political power. And a lot of the battles going on right now within those who are trying to shape the incoming Biden administration, those battles have to do with the extent to which the military industrial complex will run roughshod over the country. And the battle has been joined. Uh, we are getting what we expected from Biden. Biden was a tool to fend off the 
far worse Trump administration from getting a second term. But here we are. And uh, the battle has to go forward. Well, you wrote an article about the, the fight over who would become the secretary of defense. Um, and some people have said, well, what, what did the progressives actually win here? They get this general in. But I thought your article was very interesting and, and the clip you played. Uh, so talk a bit about that fight and, and give us a lead into the clip because I'm going to play some of it. There was really a strong coalition that built very fast. And at RootsAction.org, we worked with a number of other groups directly, uh, such as Code Pink, Progressive Democrats of America, uh, World Beyond War. Uh, these were groups uh, and our revolution. Uh, we knew that um, Michelle Flournoy has been groomed for many, many years to be Secretary of Defense. She is perhaps the leading theorist and advocate for military confrontation with China. And so there was a real licking of chops among the military industrial complex and the contractors, uh, including those she served spinning through the revolving door from the Pentagon under uh, Clinton and Obama uh, to basically be an influence peddler for the military contractors. They were just thrilled because it looked like even two or three weeks ago, she was the front runner, some said, a lead pipe cinch to be defense secretary. And so Roots Action worked with other groups. Uh, Just Foreign Policy is another organization played an important role in making clear publicly and in organizing uh, that we found her unacceptable uh, to run the Pentagon for two basic reasons. Uh, she's a, a war profiteer. And also that she, as I mentioned, is a leading advocate for a potentially disastrous buildup of U.S. forces in the South China Sea and confronting China militarily uh, in a methodical way. And I'm pleased to say that a combination of factors, including progressive pressure, uh, has prevented her from being nominated. There has been a couple of critiques of that uh, successful effort by progressives, and I think they're worthwhile to you know, briefly address. Uh, one critique is, uh, you progressives, uh, you're wimps, you don't know what you're doing, you don't want a strong military. Michelle Flournoy uh, would have strengthened our capacities and so forth uh, militarily. And, you know, unless uh, you're a hawk, you can uh, dismiss uh, that critique. Another critique um, has been, I think, more substantive, and that is, well, does it really matter? Because uh, instead of Flournoy, we got this four-star retired general, uh, Lloyd Austin, and he comes off the board of Raytheon, which is a huge military contractor. And all of that is true. Uh, he is uh, a boilerplate uh through the uh, looking glass, through the revolving door person uh, who, uh, after serving the military at an extremely high level, figured he could profiteer from it. He goes to a major military contractor. However, he's not ideological. He's going to do what Biden tells him. And unlike Flournoy, he had no agenda for building up towards China or uh, fashioning a more aggressive U.S. foreign policy. So I think it goes to sort of the broader point, which even was in play during the general election for president. We've been in the left, progressives, humanists have been in a damage mitigation situation. We're doing uh, a defensive role because of where we are historically, economically, and politically. And so we're doing damage mitigation right now. We're not in the driver's seat. 
but we can't simply conflate um, all the evil forces and say it doesn't matter uh, which one of them is in control. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's very important that we are dealing with the politics of empire, living in the heart of empire. I mean, I was living in the U.S., now I'm in Canada, but it's kind of still within the heart of the empire. Um, and, and small, quote-unquote around small, because sometimes they're not so small, differences matter. Um, if there was a president uh, who was a leader, a Democratic Party president that was more reflective of the foreign policy of Chuck Schumer, uh, there wouldn't be a, a nuclear deal with Iran. And a nuclear deal with Iran matters. It's not even such a small difference. It's a major difference from what the Israelis and the Saudis and maybe even the Chuck Schumers of this world would like, which is an attack on Iran. So there's no doubt Biden is a manager of the empire and has been so his whole career. But he has shown some instincts that are at least less aggressive than some others, and, and one would want to encourage those instincts, like the Iran deal. Apparently, when Obama had to deal with the issue of uh, the New START Treaty and was trying to get the Republicans to support him, um, he was told by the Republicans, only if you uh, make a new massive commitment to nuclear weapons. And Obama did make a trillion-dollar commitment to modernize nuclear weapons. Well, it's been reported that Biden was opposed to that. It was reported Biden was opposed to the intervention in Libya. Um, that's not to say he didn't support the Iraq war, and he isn't willing to do what the empire needs. But small differences matter. They sure matter to tons of people. If they bomb Iran, uh, and how many hundreds of thousands of people could die there, um, that's not such a small thing. So, so yeah, I, I think it's really important that we get clear about what's possible at this historical period. So as much as one critiques and denounces much of what Biden's going to do, because we know much of what he's going to do ain't going to be good. Um, these differences, especially on foreign policy, right. they're not negligible. And I want to play that clip uh, with uh, Austin, the, the general who's now going to be Secretary of Defense, because I, I didn't know about this until I saw it on your site. Uh, but the, uh, this is a clip where the general is uh, testifying in front of John McCain, and McCain wants the general to support a, a military intervention in Syria by U.S. troops to create a kind of buffer zone for refugees, which is really a rationale for getting U.S. troops involved in the war directly, or more involved in the war directly than they already were, I guess I should say. Um, and Austin doesn't get pushed around by him. It's very interesting. Here's a bit of that. Would you support a buffer zone which would then protect some of these refugees who are being barrel bombed and slaughtered by Bashar Assad? I don't see the force available to be able to protect them currently, sir, so I would not recommend it at this point in time. So we, we wouldn't be able to shoot down Bashar Assad's aircraft as they barrel bomb and slaughter innocent men, women, and children. Is that correct? We don't have the capability to protect them. We, we clearly have capability, yes, sir, we do. But you wouldn't recommend such action? I would not recommend a buffer zone at this point, sir. I see. Um, so it seems to me what's important here is this is a guy, unlike others that could have been there, Flournoy or others in the Democratic Party, who might actually uh, encourage some of Biden's better instincts rather than the other way around. 
I draw a parallel as well to that uh, because uh, Hillary Clinton four years ago uh, was obviously a uh, very potential president and she hated the left. That was in her history and she still hates the left and makes that clear. I don't think that Joe Biden hates the left. He just never had use for the left in his four plus decade career. And that also makes a difference, sort of similar to, to what you're saying. To what extent, just as uh, challenging a Democratic president uh, means not hitting your head totally against the wall the way challenging Trump has been. Also, if we have people uh, in high positions in the cabinet uh, who are not locked into a very strong, uh, dangerous ideological position, such as Michelle Flournoy has been, it gives the left, it gives progressives uh, more space to actually have an impact and galvanize our, our power. Uh, the fact that Jared Bernstein, who's a progressive economist, uh, has been and now again is on Biden's economic team, it doesn't solve the problem that uh, Biden continues to be a flunky for corporate America, but it gives us more space to work with. And when we talk about making a difference, uh, one of the reasons that I think the claims uh, from some, um, for instance, uh, who have uh, grouped themselves around the Green Party, the shrinking Green Party in the U.S., the claims are so absurd is when we're told there's really no substantive differences between the Democratic and Republican parties at the top. And then you look at the three people who have been put on the U.S. Supreme Court during the Trump era, and you look at those uh, such as even Kagan or Sotomayor or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who have been put on by uh, Democrats. And you have to ask, what is the tendency, perhaps small, but still significant uh, within the U.S. left that is uh, almost uh, susceptible to magical thinking or uh, uh, prevarication to pretend that the Democrats on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, appointed by Democrats and those appointed by Republicans, that there's no significant difference. And I think uh, progressives, we need to be willing and able to confront that kind of uh, sloppy and dangerous thinking because we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, certainly not uh, in terms of political repression. Uh, climate is at stake. You know, we could go on for hours about what's at stake. And what's at stake includes basic civil liberties, even uh, if Trump uh, was defeated. So uh, we can't afford to pretend this is all too serious uh, to uh, bend our knee to some sort of rigid and out of touch with reality uh, ideology. Yeah, I mean, you and I are, are agreeing and playing ping pong here, but that's okay. Um, see, I, I, I'm also quite critical of, of some on the left, and to some extent, I'm not sure they're still part of the left, but who, who so demonize the Democratic Party as if it's the issue, it's the enemy. And I'll just say, you know, Glenn Greenwald, who I, I, you know, I think has done, you know, great journalism over the years, but so to so demonize the Democratic Party that you can go on Tucker Carlson's show and attack the Democratic Party uh, without any word of critique of Trump. I mean, I'm, I'm all for critiquing the Democratic Party, and I don't even, I don't mind that he does it on the Tucker Carlson show, but you can't three, four days before the election or any time, frankly not also critique Trump and the Republicans and just curry favor with, with Carlson, who's sitting there smiling and nodding with everything Glenn says. Um, the, the Democratic Party isn't the problem. 
any more than the Republican Party is the problem, or Trump is the problem, or Biden is the problem. The problem is that, you know, we are part of a historical process of which we are in a system where a handful of people own most stuff. It's the system of ownership right. that's the problem. And it's not going to go away tomorrow, just, you know, it's, it's going to take uh, quite a bit of time to get uh, enough of the American people or Canadian people or whatever country you're talking about, frankly, to, to really be conscious and, and support a politics that will start to reform and change how stuff is owned, which means more public ownership and democratization of the political system. That's the issue. If you make the Democratic Party the demon, the devil here, you, you wind up actually converging with the, with, the, with the right and even the far right, which is why Tucker Carlson can sit there smiling ear to ear when people that, from the left come on. And, and, and there's other people, you know, trashing AOC because she's not left enough. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's brand building, I guess. But uh, the, the, we need to keep us progressive. What is the core progressive value? It's, it's the socialization as a solution to problems. And that's what we're fighting for, whether it's inside the Democratic Party or outside the Democratic Party. But we don't, it barely gets talked about because it becomes a morality play. You know, oh, the Democrats are just as evil as the Republicans. Well, fine, if, if you get to control the gates of heaven and who gets in and gets out, well, then maybe then you should get involved in the morality play. But we have a real practical problem here, which is the rise of fascism. And how are we going to, you know, fight against that? Because all the, all the conditions are there for it here. Well, frankly, I think a big problem uh, that does exist sometimes uh, amongst some on the left is confusing politics with therapy. Uh, angry, you know, want to express ourselves. And when uh, at Root Section we launched the Vote Trump Out campaign, we did it with a two-minute video that's still on the Vote Trump Out site from Noam Chomsky. And he said, it doesn't matter how you feel about Joe Biden. Nobody really cares how you feel. Uh, voting is an instrument, one of many, uh, to deal with what we have in the toolbox to create uh, progressive change. And when we look at going on to an outlet like Fox News, the question should always be uppermost in our minds, Who's using who? And there can be a delusion that we go on and we uh, play a certain role and we're using uh, Fox. Whereas I think uh, in the case that you mentioned, uh, Paul, it was a situation where Tucker Carlson, who's a vile racist, for instance, Tucker Carlson, a flunky for the Republican Party, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, he was using Glenn Greenwald. And Glenn Greenwald was willing to have himself used, as you point out, just days before what actually was and could be seen as a close election. I should say that twice in the weeks before uh, this election, I went on Fox Business Channel and I spoke live. And in both instances, I said that progressives are unhappy with Biden and also I denounced Trump. And I said, for instance, on Fox Business Channel that if investors had the same interest and paid attention to facts as much as Donald Trump, all those investors would completely lose their shirts. And so I was pleased to go on and denounce Trump on Fox News. But unfortunately, that's very different than what Glenn did in the cases 
that you mentioned. I think more broadly, there's a time for a united front with Democrats, corporate Democrats, who we abhor on many issues, when having that united front is essential to defeat neo-fascists like the Trump Republicans. Now, I believe we're at a time where we should not have a united front uh, with Joe Biden. We should be challenging the corporate Democrats, uh, Biden's terrible picks, uh, many of his picks for cabinet. And in Congress next year and beyond, we have a big fight on our hands at Roots Action. We're going to be involved in primary challenges from the left towards a lot of incumbents, some of whom even call themselves progressives in the U.S. House of Representatives. So as usual, we all have a lot of organizing to do. So let's get to how does this situation change? Because there was a point in the primaries where it looked like Sanders was going to win this thing. Um, and then as soon as the elites uh, and the elites of the Democratic Party realized, you know, holy shit, this is he's raising more money than we are. This whole system was designed, they they think and it was that billionaire money would decide these things. So there never could be an upstart like Sanders. But then the Internet comes along and online fundraising and it's a you know, the, the new technology has burst the bounds and limits of, of what an, a, a political system was never a, meant to be potentially democratic. So they're looking at Sanders is about to win and they go nuts and they get all the other candidates to back out more or less and back Biden and they recapture control. Um, but that motion of, you know, I, it was almost 10 million people, I think it was, that voted for Sanders, something like 3 million that voted for Warren. And then millions of people that supported that politics that didn't go out and vote and didn't get engaged in that. There's no national organizational form that can capture that motion, that energy, that political clout. And, uh, and why, after all these years, uh, isn't there a national a broad front of some kind organization that, you know, people that share at least some basic values in agreement, progressive, really progressive values, um, through such an organization can wield both financial and political clout, whether it's supporting candidates, running their own candidates inside the Democratic Party, outside. I mean, who knows, maybe even primaries within the Republican Party. I, I don't think anything should be ruled out. But there's not a national a form for this. Why isn't there and what would it take? And if you agree with me, what, what's it going to take to get it? I would say there's de facto a partial form that's not one unified organization whatsoever. Here's where I would say theory and practice can really diverge. In theory, I completely agree with you. If we could have an organizational united front in practice, you know, for whatever it's worth, my own uh, experiences have told me in the last few decades that a healthy movement will be like a healthy forest. Ecologically, you're going to have a lot of different elements there. You know, the understory, the trees, the shrubs, everything else. And as a practical matter, uh, we're not going to have that kind of one overarching organization. But what we are going to have, and I think we have been achieving more and more, 
is stronger and stronger organizations that work more collaboratively and collectively together in coalitions that in some cases de facto move like in a one arm together. Uh, We've got many different groups. We can say they each have deficiencies, they each have limitations, whether it's our revolution or Roots Action or many others that exist. Collectively, I think more and more we're getting the job done and there's an evolving uh, ideology and practice that is at least moving in the right direction, I should say the left direction. And what are the results? I mean, we have not only the squad, but we have coming in in a matter of days, uh, people who also were elected to Congress by ousting uh, centrist corporate Democrats like Cory Bush in uh, the St. Louis area. We've got Jamal Bowman, uh, who ousted the uh, horrendous hawk, uh, Elliot Engel uh, from the Bronx, Westchester uh, district around New York. And so these are these are successes. And I think there can be more and more of those as in part because you mentioned we found ways to raise money on the internet for insurgencies, including insurgent candidates, a method that strikes fear into the heart of the corporate establishment, including the Democratic Party corporate establishment. One example we're right on the edge of now uh, because uh, Marsha Fudge in uh, a congressional district in Cleveland has just been appointed or nominated by Biden to be a HUD secretary in his cabinet. As it happens, the wonderful Nina Turner lives in that district and is announcing to run for Congress in a special election. And I know from working with her personally, she's wonderful to work with in coalition. She was part of the Roots Action effort over the summer and was on our staff essentially for a few months uh, as a coordinator uh, for our Bernie Delegates Network efforts. And here's somebody who could be in Congress in a matter of a couple of months. She's a real, as she says, uh, hell-raising humanitarian. So I think the numbers can grow. It's not to be Pollyanna in any way because we have a steep uphill climb. Most even members of the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is almost 100 people in the House, most of them I don't think you and I would consider at all consistently progressive. But the work's being done. But to sort of circle back to your uh, initial point there, if we can have more unity if we can have more institutional strength, and if that strength coalesces, coalesces around um, one or two or three large national organizations, so be it. But I think what's more likely, maybe not ideal, but much more likely and could really have great benefits is to have more and more progressive organizations that are stronger and stronger and work more closely together. Yeah, I'm not in any way suggesting this one organization becomes the uber organization and other organizations don't do what they do. It's just that a form for national collaboration amongst a multitude of organizations, because I think the power of these progressives that are getting elected, especially at the federal level, um, is, is going to be far, far weaker and, and they're going to get isolated if there isn't a real mass movement outside. Uh, you know, and one, the ability, obviously, to call people into the streets, but even more so uh, real organizing going on. We're in between elections in people's communities and in, in people's factories and, and, and with a real plan to go talk to people in, in areas of the working class that have voted for Trump. Um, so so this, this form exists. And, and I know this work is going on. 
it's not like there aren't organizations doing everything I just said. Like I know in Pennsylvania alone, there's probably five different organizations doing that. But there's no way, to, at least that I know of, there's no way that this gets any kind of national direction, strategy to agree on some, even on some of the issues to make noise about uh, and to pressure on. Um, and, and I know it's tough because every, every organization is fighting for its existence, its financial existence, and it, and, and it, it does get competitive because there's only so many places to raise money from. Right. But, but if you take climate as the overarching issue and, you know, a way to get, you know, every organization involved in whatever they're fighting for to be part of a broad front that fights for real effective climate action and not window dressing, um, I mean, that's where I'm headed with. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that this system and, of course, economic power is political power and we live in a virtual oligarchy. The system has so many horrific effects uh, from climate to militarism, threat of nuclear war, institutionalized racism, so many other aspects, lack of health care. And so people are sort of bailing out the boat. And that's part of the dynamic. I think for better and worse, uh, and maybe I'm showing my age here, I think it's often for worse, but it's a reality. For better or worse, the Internet is the most powerful tool that we can use. It's only a tool. It's not content but it's a tool for organizing. And so I think a lot of that communication and cohesion is being um, made possible by people's creative and strong use of the internet. You know, we can reach uh, literally millions of people in a matter of hours if there's breaking news or with longer term agendas. And I certainly agree as well, and it's a key point, that ultimately this is less about who's elected than the movements that they serve. And Bernie Sanders has been a sort of prototype, uh, maybe the only a member of Congress a number of years ago who literally was part and always had been part of social movements. And the classic view of politicians uh, to some significant degree is they see movements as a subset of their electoral campaigns, which is bass backwards. Movements need to have elected officials and their campaigns be only subsets of the broad and deep social movements. And that's where it's at. And you have people like Rashida Tlaib in Congress who absolutely are unified with that concept. And to me, that's very exciting because it's a movement that has elected officials uh, not at the centerpiece of building strength, but as one aspect to give us the state capacity for state power, which ultimately we're going to need. And I would add one other thing. I think that the debate over whether elections matter and for that matter, whether we ought to work, including through the Democratic Party, I think in the last five years, because of the Bernie campaigns and what has come since, I think that debate has largely been settled. State power really matters. If anybody on left still doubts that, I don't know where they've been. And when you look at the reality of everything we were protesting from the Occupy movement a decade ago to any other issue, Black Lives Matter, that were in the streets, even if people say, I don't care you know, what government does or who is in power or who's elected, ultimately we get to manifest our victories if we win them through state power and what is done by government. And ultimately we're going to need government to do what we demand it does. Um, I, I disagree a little bit with a couple of things. Uh, I mean, just a nuance of disagreement. Um, right now, 
as far as I can tell, the electoral campaigns are the most effective movements there are right now. When people get organized to elect these progressives, they're like little movements to get the person elected. And I, I wouldn't, I know you're not, because I know you're very much in, in, involved in and in, in support of these progressive campaigns. The idea of elected representatives being uh, accountable and part of the mass movement is an ideal, but boy, we're so far from there. So right now, these progressive campaigns are, are almost the most important game in town, which is why I'm raising the issue of how do we get to this broader organization outside of these elect, elective campaigns. And, and, and I also would, I'd also disagree with one other thing. I think the problem with the internet organizing, and of course it's critical, but it's, it's more or less to people who are already with a, a somewhat like-mindedness. <clears throat> I think that 74 million people that voted for Trump and how many millions that voted for Biden never encounter a progressive idea from in their entire lives. Uh, the, the idea that, that, that the progressive organizing on the internet is getting into the sections of the working class that are increasingly being influenced by Trumpism, like apparently the vote for Trump went up in the Bronx and, the, and Queens, um, that ain't gonna be done through the internet because the, the channels of mass communication on the internet are still controlled by monopolies. It's the same way on television. Uh, you know, most, most people still get their news actually through TV, even if it's on the internet. Uh, although, you know, the, which is why the right is, you know, they don't, you know, whether it's Fox or the new thing that Trump's gonna create, um, the, the, the door knocking has been so effective in electing progressives. Like the, the actual getting out into the communities, getting directly to workplaces, Getting into sections where you get to talk to people that you'll never reach on the internet because it's too siloed to get to them. Um, that kind of organizing, that old style, old school stuff, it seems to be actually even what's working to elect the progressives too. I know they have a sophisticated, like AOC and others have progressive, uh, sophisticated internet campaigns, but the door knocking and this kind of very direct stuff. And I don't know if there's enough... Um, what's the word for it, encouragement for people that want to get involved in politics to then get involved in that kind of direct communication into sections of the working class. The way in the 60s, you know, people were, you know, organizing in the South and so on. Oh, well, a couple of thoughts. Thanks for that. Um, you know, AOC has said that the targeting even through Facebook was crucial to her election. And of course, you and I are in agreement. This is not an either or. You need to be online and you need to be offline powerfully in both ways. Uh, you know, something that uh, the great uh, analyst of uh, media, Bob McChesney, has pointed out, as you say, is that corporations have largest in history, quickest in history, taken over technology uh, in terms of the Internet. At the same time, the Internet, like all technologies, nobody was ever freed by technology. It's all about what you do with it. Uh, the, the, uh, the technology of the Internet will never do it. So any reliance on that would be mistaken. But, you know, that said, first of all, uh, under COVID, uh, the capacity to do anything but internet outreach has been very small. I think that, of course, hopefully that's going to change. But also the right wing has done tremendous 
uh, damage by use of the internet. They are plugged into it. So I think you and I would both stipulate we need to use the internet to the maximum. We need to be offline to the maximum to get it done. The thing about a movement is I, you know, maybe it's nomenclature, but um, I don't think of a, one electoral campaign as a movement, or at least not a sustained movement, because the nature of elections are that they're boom bust and presidential every four years, Senate six years, you know, so two years for the House. So we don't want movements tied to a phenomenon that is boom bust, nor do we want movements to be tied to personalities, leaders, however great they are, like Bernie Sanders. And of course, Bernie had, uh, and I think still has in the Senate office, uh, a picture of his hero, Eugene Debs. And Debs said, if I could lead you to socialism, I wouldn't do it because somebody else could lead you away from it. So I think it's, you know, it's uh, complicated and nuanced and hard to know uh, what the interplay will always be. Uh, but I would say that uh, movements can lift candidates to victory. Uh, I don't know really that candidates can lift movements to victory, although there could be a synergy and a mutual reinforcement uh, that ultimately is what we're after. Where, where is a movement that of scale, especially that took power, that didn't have a galvanizing personality at the head of it? Which one is it? Well, I think we don't say, we say the civil rights movement. We don't say the Martin Luther King movement. He was very important. Uh, without a movement, uh, he wouldn't have been important. So I, again, I don't think it's neither or we need great leadership uh, when you think of the issues uh, such as, say, gay rights, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, these were movements that put something on the agenda. And would we have had gay marriage without movements? Uh, I can't think of an individual politician who made it happen. I can think movements have, ha made it happen. At the same time, I think it's absolutely crucial uh, to have people elected in the House and Senate and someday maybe in the White House um, who are not flunkies for corporate America, because that's what we've always had for president. That's what we have overwhelmingly in the House and Senate. And until we can change that, uh, we're still up against the wall. All right. Thanks very much, Norman. Obviously, just the, the beginning of this conversation, at least uh, at this point. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage, and you can read all about the matching grant campaign there.